0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present investigative reporter and best-selling author Greg Pallast who talks about his new documentary film, Vigilante, Georgia's vote suppression hitman, which is scheduled to be released this fall. Jeff Shirky, assistant professor of labor studies at Empire State College in New York City, who examines Starbucks' lawless anti-union campaign across the U.S. And Connecticut's Democratic governor, Ned Lamont, who discusses his state's expansive health care coverage, climate policies, and combating rising anti democratic and authoritarian views among many Republicans. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: A Chinese Navy vessel arrived at a southern Sri Lankan port built by Beijing on August 16th. The 750-foot ship was welcomed by senior Sri Lankan and Chinese officials under a massive banner that read Long Live Sri Lanka-China Friendship. The naval vessel's visit to Sri Lanka has alarmed Indian government officials who view China's rising influence in the Indian Ocean with suspicion. The Guardian reports that the ship's movement will likely be closely monitored by the U.S. and Western allies as they have long been critical of Beijing's relationship with Sri Lanka. Indian news outlets remark that the Chinese Navy vessel has powerful radar for tracking with the capability to surveil a 460-mile area that includes several key Indian ports. Sri Lanka has in recent months been mired in a serious economic crisis. Chinese loans account for about 10% of the nation's total foreign debt. In mid-July, Nicholas Niarjos, a journalist on assignment for The Nation magazine, along with his colleague and translator, Joseph Jiv Kazadi, were detained in Lumbambashi, in the Southern Democratic Republic of the Congo. They were reporting on links between separatists in the region and mining for rare-earth minerals, including cobalt, a key ingredient in the manufacture of lithium ion batteries. Both reporters are fully accredited and have been engaged in normal journalistic activities. Niarhos and Kazadi were accused of espionage and were repeatedly interrogated by the Congo's notorious secret police, which claimed they were trying to fund rebel groups. Six days after his arrest, Nyarros, a foreign national, was expelled from the country, while Kazadi, who is Congolese, remains in detention. The arrests come as the Congo, under President Felix Tshisekedi, has lurched toward authoritarianism. According to Reporters Without Borders, 19 journalists have been arbitrarily arrested in the country since the beginning of the year, with reports that at least three have been tortured. The Nation magazine calls on the Congolese government to respect the rights of journalists and to free Jeev Kazadi immediately. Four years ago, a group of University of Connecticut students protested as defense contractor Lockheed Martin celebrated a special day on campus by landing Black Hawk and Sikorsky S-76 helicopters next to the Student Union. The students were angry that weeks earlier, a Saudi-led airstrike in Yemen had killed 40 children in a school bus. The year before, Lockheed Martin had sold the Saudis $110 million in precision-guided munitions in a deal brokered by the Trump administration. According to Indies Times magazine, Yukon has a long-term relationship with Lockheed Martin, the nation's largest arms contractor. Lockheed Martin regularly appears on campus with technology demos and conducts interviews to recruit students to work for the company. UConn is among a network of a dozen universities that participate in Lockheed Martin Day, part of a broader effort by arms contractors to boost recruitment of university students from science and engineering programs. As students face rising college tuition and debt, Military contractors are offering generous scholarship programs, well-paid internships, and loan repayment plans. To diversify its workforce, Lockheed in recent years has also put a new focus on financial support and recruitment at historically Black colleges and universities. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: In September 2020, just before that year's presidential election, the ACLU of Georgia released a report conducted by investigative reporter Greg Pallast titled Georgia Voter Roll Purge Errors, which concluded the Republican Party-controlled state had removed 198,000 voter registrations of Georgia citizens in 2019 on the grounds that they had moved from the address listed on their voter registration application. Investigators found that none of these citizens had moved, but the purge of these voters disproportionately affected voters in communities of color, as well as young and lower-income voters. Once this scheme was exposed... A major effort was launched to ensure these voters were reinstated on the voter rolls. Joe Biden went on to win Georgia's November election, and Democrats Rev. Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff both won their January Senate runoff elections. After the 2020 election, Georgia Republicans passed a new voter suppression law, SB202, that gives state-level officials the authority to replace county election boards criminalizes anyone who offers food and water to voters waiting in line, and severely restricts the use of absentee ballots in ballot drop boxes. Astonishingly, the law also empowers individual voters to challenge literally tens of thousands of other Georgians' right to vote. Your reporter spoke with best-selling author and investigative journalist Greg Pallast, who's been reporting on voter suppression for over 20 years. Here, Pallas talks about his new documentary film titled Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman, produced by Martin Sheen. The film is scheduled for release this fall.
2: The reason it's called Vigilante is that in the new law, there's an old trick juiced up. What no one seems to have noticed is that under Georgia law, you can now challenge an unlimited number of voters. Any voter can challenge an unlimited number of other voters. And they'd have, and it's not been covered. Over a quarter million voters are facing a challenge uh, where individuals, that's why I call them vigilantes, they're not officials. They may be officially related to the Republican Party, but they're not state, it's not like a state official removing you, which was our problem before. This is just any individual can say, Scott Harris can't vote. No, Scott doesn't really live in Connecticut. I'm challenging his vote. We had one woman, that you'll meet in the film, challenged 32,000 people in an Atlanta suburb, 32,000. was so many people that she challenged saying that they didn't have the right to vote, that she couldn't even print it out. She handed in the thumb drive and we called 800 of the people on her list. They're all shocked. What do you mean? I don't live here. <laughs> I'm right here. Hello. She didn't check. She didn't call. She didn't care. You know, Overwhelmingly black and young voters who could lose their vote. In addition, we had a, uh, Uh, Another guy who actually dresses like a vigilante, Uh, his name is Alton Russell, but he likes to dress up like Doc Holliday. Remember the old vigilante from the OK Corral? He's actually a Georgian. And this guy wanders around in a cowboy hat and loaded six shooter. I kid you not. You think, well, this is just a nutcase. Well, you may think he's a nutcase, but he's also chairman of the county Republican Party and a member of the Republican State Committee. He's an important guy in georgia republican politics he challenged four thousand people and one of the people he challenged by the way is a um an african-american career military man who has been assigned by the commander-in-chief to california so that's why he asked for an absentee ballot from his home near fort benning georgia where he lives so that's the latest and believe me if it's in georgia as we found in my prior investigations nationwide they try in Georgia, it spreads quickly elsewhere. In fact, these lists were created by a group called True the Vote out of Texas. And so they are a group that basically has been attacking voter rolls and black voters for 10 years.
0: Well, as, as you've said over the years that Georgia is the Republican Party's election subversion and dirty tricks laboratory. So yeah. here, here's another example. Now, Greg, Your goal, of course, is to expose this scheme to deprive Mm -hmm. people of their votes. What's the process in terms of adjudicating the the correctness or failure to prove that somebody doesn't deserve to vote? Once put on one of these lists, do people have a right to respond, and how is this question settled?
2: Oh, it's the craziest thing. Uh, It just says all you have to do is fill out a piece of paper that says, I believe believe that the following people— are not legal voters here in Georgia, and then you just give the list of the names and addresses and and um, voter numbers. They just list them. That's it. Now, in my opinion, and in the opinion of, for example, uh, Gerald Griggs, who's the um, president of the NAACP Georgia and uh, famous trial lawyer, he said this looks like a violation of the Ku Klux Klan Act. You can't just. I asked this woman who challenged thirty-two thousand people. Did you call these people? I didn't call thirty-two thousand people. Are you crazy? No, did you send any – did you send out, like, letters to, to these people saying, I'm ch- you know, do you live where you live? No. Did you go to their addresses? No. It didn't do anything. She just got this list from this Texas group, this hit list from this Texas group. She says, well, what's the big deal? They can always get their names back on. No, they can't. Like, the major was told, if you want to vote, you have to come into our office and prove that you still live where you live. And that's the procedure. You must go into the county office. And have a hearing on whether you live where you live. And the major, like he said, I'm 2,300 miles away. They want me to fly from California to get my vote counted. And by the way, he did. He did just that. Hmm. Um, he wasn't going to let it go. But that's why, uh, yeah, so you literally have to go in and prove you are who you are. It's a crazy system. Now, understand, this woman challenged 32,000 people in Cobb County alone. So you have to have 32,000 people jam into those offices. By the way, during COVID. They say, oh, well, you get a notice from the county. If you're lucky, they're supposed to send you a postcard. Now, come on, it's junk mail. So it's a mad system and we're trying to get it blocked. It was There was an attempt to do this before the, the senatorial runoff in January of 2021. But it was blocked by the courts simply on the grounds that it was within 90 days of a federal election. You can't remove someone within 90 days of a federal election. So that failed. But but everyone's guard was down because they didn't realize that the new law would empower the crazies. Well, I say crazies. It's not so crazy if they can win an election this way, is
0: it? That was investigative reporter Greg Palast, best-selling author of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Learn more about Palace' new documentary film, Vigilante, Georgia's vote suppression hitman, scheduled to be released this fall, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Last year, workers at two Starbucks coffee stores in Buffalo, New York, voted to form a union, the first in the nation. Starbucks, the largest coffeehouse chain in the world, had fiercely fought the union drive and lost. Since then, baristas at more than 220 Starbucks stores across the U.S. have voted to unionize, representing some 5,000 workers. But Starbucks has taken an aggressive stand against the union juggernaut, betraying the carefully crafted image of the company as a caring and progressive employer, upholding the values of social justice and equality. Now fully engaged in a crude union-busting campaign, the company has closed down pro-union stores, fired pro-union workers, and denied raises to union members. Your reporter spoke with Jeff Shirkey, assistant professor of labor studies at Empire State College in New York City. Here he talks about his recent Jacobin Magazine article titled, Starbucks is on a National Union-Busting Crime Spree, and How the Union... Starbucks Workers United is fighting back
3: because the campaign is so big and it keeps growing so rapidly. The company is using uh, even harsher tactics than than normal. So, as you mentioned, yes, they fired, according to the union, over 80 pro-union workers um, as retaliation for supporting the union or for union activism which is illegal under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, They've also, besides firing people, they've disciplined them or cut their hours or other kinds of things. Again, targeting them because of their union activism, which is also illegal. And you mentioned they've closed a handful of stores that were pro-union or had already organized. Again, that's something that's illegal. And the company, I think it was August 1st, implemented raises, across all their stores but they said only the stores that have voted to unionize will not get these raises which is just kind of a discriminatory implementation of of raises and so that's also illegal A big part of the problem here um is that the labor laws national labor relations act and how it's been interpreted by the courts over the years and some of the decisions from the national labor relations board which is the federal agency that enforces the law have really kind of watered the law down. So um, it's sort of toothless. There aren't really strong enforcement mechanisms. The law itself, there are no civil penalties that a a company has to pay if they violated the law. So if they've fired someone illegally, the only penalty that, or it's not really even a penalty, the only punishment that uh, Starbucks faces is having to reinstate the workers um, and give them back pay.
0: Jeff, what kind of support are the Starbucks workers who are caught in the crosshairs of this anti-union drive on the part of Starbucks, what kind of assistance is coming from the AFL-CIO and other major labor unions across the country who certainly have something at stake here in the outcome of this fight?
3: Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the established unions that are you know, part of the AFL-CIO or also outside of the AFL-CIO have a a real stake in seeing the the success of, of the Starbucks campaign, and you know, given the fact that the company is waging this really aggressive illegal anti union union busting campaign, the ultimate success of the campaign you know is somewhat in question. You know, they're they're up against a major company that's willing to do anything to to stop them. So it is, in my opinion, in, you know, incumbent on the established labor movement to do everything it can to support the the workers at Starbucks. The union that they're joining at Starbucks is an established union, Workers United, which is part of the SEIU. And they've gotten lots of support from them, obviously, in terms of um, advice on organizing, as well as uh, lawyers to help them, you know, when they get fired illegally, to have lawyers to help them to file charges with the National Labor Relations Board. And really importantly, Workers United has started a, a strike fund of $1 million. And this is important because the workers, you know, to protest all this illegal union busting have been going on strike. There have been at least 60 strikes, I think, just this summer at different Starbucks stores across the country, usually lasting for a few days, although there's one in Boston that's been going on for over a month now. And one of the biggest hangups for workers when they're talking about maybe going on strike, and one of the reasons why they often will not go on strike is because they're obviously worried about losing their paycheck and they need their paycheck. So having a strike fund says if you go on strike, you'll still get at least some money while for the days that you that you're not working. By going on strike, you know, this costs the company money because they don't have workers and they have to close down and they're losing revenues. So this is something that's actually very effective in getting the company to stop breaking the law and actually come to the negotiating table and actually recognize the union and negotiate with it. So something that established unions could be doing more of, in my opinion, is donating more money to the strike fund so that they can have more strikes, more work stoppages for longer periods of time and really, you know, hit Starbucks where it hurts in the pocketbook so that they'll Mm -hmm. stop this illegal union-busting campaign.
0: What are the ways listeners who are supportive of the union organizing drive at Starbucks, how can they uh, support the workers? I know there was one thing in your article you talked about, which was the no contract, no coffee pledge.
3: Yeah. So uh, listeners can look up Starbucks Workers United online, and you'll see right there, there's a thing called the no contract, no coffee pledge. And if you, you, you put in your email address, and they'll send you email alerts, or you can put in your phone number. They'll give you text message alerts about activities happening at your local Starbucks where you can go and support the workers, whether it's joining them on the picket line if they're on strike or other kinds of activities that they're doing. Um, and, and just staying informed about what's going on. Um, so that's, that's probably the, the place to start if you want to support the campaign.
0: That was Jeff Shirky, Assistant Professor of Labor Studies at Empire State College in New York City. Find a link to his recent article, Starbucks is on a National Union Busting Crime Spree, and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Connecticut is among the states in the forefront of expanding Medicaid coverage through its Husky Health Program that offers health care to eligible children, parents, relative caregivers, elders, individuals with disabilities, adults without dependent children, and pregnant women. In May, the state legislature expanded Medicaid coverage to undocumented children 12 years old and younger whose guardians meet the qualifying income limit. These benefits were not extended to undocumented adults. The program will begin on January 1st next year. Earlier in 2022, the state further strengthened its abortion laws, which were already among the most comprehensive in the nation, extending protections for those who come to Connecticut from out of state to get abortion care, and to their providers. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus spoke with incumbent Democratic Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont who's running for re-election this November. Here he talks about the impact of federal funds on state climate policy and his thoughts on how to combat rising anti-democratic and authoritarian views among many Republicans. But Lamont begins by describing the state's expansive health care coverage.
4: What we have done is we have eliminated um, all costs for any family earning less than about $70,000 dollars. And what I say that on our covered Connecticut exchange program, you register there. What that means is not only is there no uh, premium cost, but no copay, no deductibles as well. So we're doing everything we can to broaden healthcare access for everybody. Boy, we found out how important that was during COVID, didn't we?
5: There's been a campaign since COVID began to get the state to offer health coverage to all undocumented folks, so many of whom are essential workers. So it's really an issue that affects all of us. I know undocumented children are covered uh, up to age 12, I guess. But what is your administration's position on offering health care to all undocumented residents of any age?
4: Obviously, the feds don't support anything as regards undocumented, but this is what we've done in Connecticut. We have said if uh, you're ready to have a baby um, or whatever your documentation status, we get a nurse to your home if you want it before birth and after birth. We provide coverage for everybody up to uh, the age of 12, regardless of documentation status. And more importantly, we raised about $5 million during uh, COVID to make sure that anybody undocumented had all the support they need for health care. We did this privately just to make sure that when it came to a primary care physician and getting that vaccination and getting that test, we were able to take care of everybody. So it's one step at a time, but I think we're making real progress.
5: Just so I'm clear, you're saying that private money was raised for any person of any age who's undocumented, who needs health care?
4: Yes, we raised about five million dollars really to get people introduced to a primary care doc. And the primary care doc was invaluable when it came to testing, when it came to vaccinations, doing everything we can to keep you safe during the pandemic.
5: But when private funding runs out, do you think the state should treat low-income undocumented adults the same as low-income citizens in terms of health coverage?
4: Well, like I said, one step at a time. We've certainly uh, increased uh, folks who are eligible, just like we've done for scholarships at UConn and other places, you know, making sure that um, everybody who's born here or um, you know, comes here uh, at a certain age you know, gets that support that they need. And we'll continue to look at that and provide progress there.
5: Governor Ned Lamont, I wanted to raise a climate issue. The IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, has some positive things and some negative things, and I hope they don't cancel each other out. But there has been money coming into the states from last year's infrastructure bill, and more will be coming in from the IRA. How is that affecting Connecticut's efforts to transition to 100% clean energy, which I know in Connecticut includes nuclear energy, which a lot of folks think we need to move away from?
4: It's invaluable. Joe Biden has been the most environmental president we've had in uh, decades, perhaps forever. Uh, What that meant in terms of the infrastructure bill, and now, as you point out, under the Inflation Reduction Act, what that does. Our electric grid, um, Melinda, is almost all carbon-free now. We've got about another 10 percent to go. We're moving to wind power over the next uh, few years, so that will get us uh, really to 97 percent or something carbon-free. And that's really important because our next step is to move our transportation sector carbon-free. That's where most of the particulates, that's where most of the global warming, that's where most of the asthma-causing um, you know, gases are affecting um, you know, social justice and livelihoods of kids living along the I-95. So uh, there we're making big progress. That's going to take a little bit longer. But we're moving towards electrification of the transportation system Obviously, charging stations up and down all of our major throughways, now even not-so-major throughways. And I'd like to say over the course of the next uh, 10 years or so, we're going to be as close to a carbon-free state as you have in this country.
5: Election deniers and anti-democratic Republican candidates are winning primary elections across the U.S. What, in your view, should pro-democracy citizens from any party Be doing now to effectively combat the lies and alarming calls for political violence that we're seeing from many pro Trump Republicans.
4: Don't take democracy for granted. Uh, It's fragile. And uh, it was really threatened by uh, uh, Donald Trump and a lot of his um, acolytes um, in this last cycle. And election deniers are dangerous. Elections only work when people vote and they sign off on the um, verdict that was cast by the voters. And I I think it's so important that we look at the secretary of state races across the country. You've got a fair number of those folks who are saying, um, I'm going to ignore the electors. I'm going to ignore the vote of the people. We're going to try and um, play games with that. You cannot allow that to happen. So I urge everybody, especially in those uh, red and purple states where maybe they're flirting with some of these election deniers, keep them out of the secretary of state's office. You want an impartial judge there to make sure our democracy is pure.
0: That was Democratic Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Learn more about the state's progressive health care, reproductive rights, and climate policies by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Thanks for listening on WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mika This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.